The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 25th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Going to do a different kind of show today. Well, we'll end in a bar, so you know that'll be a good day by the end, but it's going to be a little bit backwards. I'm going to discuss the Ferguson decision, and therefore I have to begin with the spiel. It looks like a demon. These were the words of Officer Darren Wilson describing Michael Brown to a grand jury in Ferguson. The only way I can describe it, it looks like a demon. That's how angry he looked. It is Michael Brown, not a demon, a human, 18-year-old, who within three minutes of first speaking with the Ferguson policeman lay dead in a pool of blood, a barrage of bullets, and soon thereafter a nationwide explosion of anger. Yesterday in Ferguson, the unusually conducted grand jury inquest failed to return an indictment. I have to say, under Missouri law, I remain unconvinced that an indictment was warranted. I will discuss that further with a couple of legal experts. But hear what I said. An indictment might not have been warranted under Missouri law. Of course, the entire affair is an indictment of our lack of follow-up, of our lack of attention, of our lack of empathy, of our lack of seriousness until it's too late or until a gleaming poster child is presented. And then... When the poster is revealed to have been airbrushed a bit, or when the child is shown to be less than an innocent naif, we think that's important or shocking or disqualifying of the incident as a real issue. There never is a perfect victim. Eyewitness accounts vary as to whether Michael Brown raised his hands above his head if he said, don't shoot. So what really happened? Correct answer. That doesn't matter. We sometimes say, where is the outrage? Well, here in Ferguson, here's the outrage. The question is more, where is the follow-through? Outrage is a sudden burst of emotion. Change isn't an outburst, it's a process. Would it change things if this one police officer were made to face trial? Would a dozen other officers in the docket change things? I think we'd be better served focusing on what makes a policeman draw a gun and aim it in the first place, rather than focusing on what happens after the trigger is pulled and there's an innocent body in the street. I have sympathy for the police. So does Barack Obama. He said so in a classic Obama-esque, even-handed appeal for calm in remarks last night. The fact is, in too many parts of this country, a deep distrust exists between law enforcement and communities of color. Some of this is the result of the legacy of racial discrimination in this country. And this is tragic because nobody needs good policing more than poor communities with higher crime rates. Businesses in one of those poor communities went up in flames not soon after Obama completed his remarks. Describing last night's violent protests, which led to dozens of arrests, heartbroken was the word used by John Belmar, the chief of the St. Louis County Police. Here he is in a pre-dawn press conference. A lot of gunfire. I'm disappointed in this evening. Uh, I really don't have any hesitation in telling you that I didn't see a lot of peaceful protest out there tonight, and I'm disappointed about that. I'm not saying there weren't folks out there that were out there for the right reason. I'm not saying that wasn't the case, but I am saying that, unfortunately, this spun out of control. And, frankly, what I'm seeing tonight, and I have been up there all evening, right in the middle of it, along with Captain Johnson, what I've seen tonight is probably much worse than the worst night we ever had in August. It's sad, 
But if the protests had been nothing but peaceful all along, would we even be having the necessary conversations about things like excessive use of force and militarization of the police, about disenfranchisement of whole communities due to quickly shifting demographics? President Obama is right. These are real problems. There does need to be justice, including maybe starting with an accurate accounting of how often these incidents occur. That's supposed to be overseen by the U.S. Department of Justice. That department is overseen by one Barack Obama. But we do desperately need tangible reforms, not alluring arguments. For all of Obama's chronic calm or bloodless demeanor, whatever you want to call it, imagine if there was another president, say Rudy Giuliani, who campaigned hard to get Obama's job but didn't come close. I saw him on Meet the Press. Here was his analysis of the problem of the occasional shooting of unarmed black people by well-armed, mostly white policemen. 93% of blacks in America are killed by other blacks. We're talking about the exception here. I'd like to see the attention paid to that that you are paying to this. Well, the Iran talks fell apart. Why aren't you talking about that? Reverse mortgages can leave you bankrupt. Why aren't you talking about that? There are a lot of bad things in the world that don't necessarily have to do with other bad things. Intra-racial murder is the most prevalent form of murder for every race. 84% of whites are killed by other whites. This is a distraction. Robert McCulloch, the St. Louis County prosecutor, also railed against distractions. To hear him tell it, there was an evil stalking Ferguson. Its name was Media. The most significant challenge encountered in this investigation has been the 24-hour news cycle and its insatiable appetite for something, for anything, to talk about. McCulloch had the demeanor of a lawman who was about to clear the courtroom with one more outburst. He blamed the blabbers and then issued a warning. As a caution to those in and out of the media who will pounce on a single sentence or a single witness and decide what should have happened in this case based on that tiny bit of information. The duty of the grand jury is to separate fact from fiction. It is a fact that Darren Wilson wasn't indicted. It's wrong to confuse unindicted with good police work or acceptable policing policy. The job that Officer Wilson did that day is unacceptable. The fact that we have so many almost all white police departments and almost all black neighborhoods must change. That's unacceptable. Where we are in terms of training and use of force, that's unacceptable. And What about putting some forethought into the humanity of those policed so the decisions don't have to come down to the life or death of those doing the policing? At this point, it looked like he was almost bulking up to run through the shots, like it was making him mad that I'm shooting at him, Darren Wilson told prosecutors. And the face that he had was looking straight through me, like I wasn't even there. Well, Officer Wilson is still here, as are the problems his actions and ongoing freedom give rise to. Transforming things from a situation of backlash and outburst to one of resolve and improvement looks like a demon. Okay, now I'm doing these two interviews with a couple of experts, legal experts, on what went down in Ferguson and the strange conduct of the grand jury. Joining me now is Jamie Floyd, who was a public defender in San Francisco. She was a White House fellow. She's been a journalist for many years. She's covered trials of police shootings like Abner Louima and Amadou Diallo here in New York, and she covers the courts for Al Jazeera America now. Thank you for joining me, Jamie. Happy to be here. What made this process, this grand jury process, so unusual? Oh, my goodness. Well, it was unusual in almost every way, and even 
the prosecutor, Bob McCullough, said it was the most unusual of his 20-year career. First of all, the grand jury looked at this case for three and a half months, which is unheard of for any grand jury. He gave them no specific charge to look at, which is highly unusual, and he gave them all of the evidence, which prosecutors never do. Uh, I could keep going. You want me to keep going? Well, he he called the accused as a witness. He called the accused as a witness, and, and and the accused testified before the grand jury for hours. Some people say, you know, he gave an, uh, an unsolicited statement in his own uh, behalf, uh, you know, unchallenged, uncross-examined. Others say that he sealed the deal to prevent ever going to trial by speaking before the grand jury. So that's also highly, highly unusual. Uh, a lot of my criminal defense attorney friends said the minute the police officer testified, the whole thing was over. He was going to walk. You've never seen anything like that in never, practice? Never, never. What prosecutors do when they go before a grand jury is they have a very small slice of the case that they present. And certainly the defendant isn't going to come in there and start singing his song, right? They're trying to convict that guy. I've never seen anything like that to answer your question directly. In this case, what would have been the elements necessary for an indictment of Officer Wilson? Well, you had four potential charges here, right? You had murder one, which nobody thought Officer Wilson was going to be indicted on. Mm -hmm. Second-degree murder, also highly unlikely. Uh, And then the two more likely counts, voluntary manslaughter or involuntary manslaughter, which required some degree of recklessness. And that's where most of us thought he might be indicted. I mean, I got to tell you, Mike, from where I sat, this could have been a voluntary manslaughter case. I really am loath to second guess. But to me, with what I know, uh, and even the limitations of eyewitness testimony and, and media misreporting and all of that, it felt to me like at least an involuntary manslaughter. It, it just seemed to me that something went terribly wrong in the 90 seconds between Officer Wilson and Mike Brown, that at least he should be held to answer in front of a jury. Now, would he be convicted? That I doubted. But I wanted to see more facts transparently tried in a public court of law. Although given how the statutes are written, including, I'm going to include some reporting that you did uh, talking about what are the burdens of an officer to retreat. You know, if a grand jury is presented with facts that include the officer's testimony that Mike Brown went for the gun and that there was struggle and punches, and then even if there was time in between when that happened and when the shooting occurred, I mean, I I heard you talking to the Brian Lair show on WMYC, and you said that the officer, by the letter of the law in Missouri, can shoot someone, you know, 40 feet away, even if that person has his arms raised at shoulder length. A head length, well, some length. Yeah, I didn't say that about the feet, but I'm about to be hoisted by my own petard because I did say that officers have wide latitude when there's a fleeing felon in Missouri. But the reason I say I would like to see it tried in a court of law, even though you're correct, Mike, that the law of self-defense, especially vis-a-vis police officers, but for everyone in Missouri, is very broad. The reason I say I'd like to have seen this in a courtroom is that when somebody alleges self-defense, when they raise the law of self-defense as their defense, it's all about their demeanor on the witness stand. And you can only judge that by looking into the witness's eyes. 
And the only 12 people who've seen this officer testify now are those 12 jurors. And in a case of this import and significance historically and gravitas, we now have this cloak of secrecy. And I respect that the grand jury process has to be secret, but we will never now see Officer Wilson tell us about his subjective fear in that moment. We just have to take it on faith that he was afraid of Mike Brown at that moment in time. Well, what if he can convince us, as maybe convince that grand jury, that he was subjectively fearful? Is it proper to kind of pick over what the elements of that fear was? I mean, he was saying things like, it looked like a demon. I thought that he would bulk up and run through the shots. It was like a five-year-old holding onto Hulk Hogan. Things that seem either fanciful or, you know what, informed by, it's been suggested, some conception of how dangerous a large black man could be. Even putting all that aside. It's racism. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. (laughs) Yes, I think it is fair to pick over what informs his notion of how he needs to defend himself. And the reason we need to pick over it is because the laws of self-defense in this country are and were contemplated by equal participants in a battle. So, for example, Mike Pesca is up against Mike Pesca. They don't contemplate Jamie Floyd and Mike Pesca having a battle, a woman against a man, or a large black man and a smaller white man. And by the way, these two guys were pretty much about the same size. Our subjective vision of what goes into our fear is very much a part of the law of self-defense in this country, but we fail to acknowledge that and recognize that when we try cases in this country. And that was very much a part of the Zimmerman case as well. Yes, the perception of it. And, you know, depending on who is on the jury, they might look at that and say, they might look at that and say, well, that seems reasonable or that seems informed by something not based in logic. If what we really want is some sort of reform to happen and to make it less likely, do you think a trial would have gotten us closer to that ultimate reform? Not in this case, I fear, because I think in this case, a trial would simply have led to an acquittal of Officer Wilson. And I think that may have led to more unrest rather than less. I think the best result here would be some oversight and investigation by the federal government into what has gone wrong in Ferguson. Jamie Floyd, lawyer, journalist, covers the courts for Al Jazeera America. Thank you so much for your time, Jamie. It's my pleasure. And now David Feige joins me. He's been writing about the legal system for Slate. He's the author of Indefensible, One Lawyer's Journey into the Inferno of American Justice. That details his time as a public defender, a founding member of the Bronx Defenders. He later became trial chief at that public defender's office. Hello, David Feige. Hey, good to be with you. I know that you, many others, were surprised that the prosecutor, Bob McCulloch, would do this. Was it widely known that he could do this, conduct a grand jury in this way? In a way, yes, which is to say prosecutors are the masters of the grand jury. They can do whatever they want. So could he throw the doors open? He could, and he did. Is it done 
regularly? Absolutely not. It's vanishingly rare. How many years were you a lawyer, a defender, a trial lawyer? I was a public defender for about 15 years. You ever see a prosecutor not really going for an indictment in a grand jury? Only in cop cases, to be honest. I have seen something similar in the past, although, as I said, it's extremely rare. But there are cases in which there is this complex political calculus. And in those cases, the prosecutors will occasionally sort of fudge things. They will present because they have to, but they will gently put their thumb on the scale, as I think McCullough ultimately did here. Well, how do you know that the motivation is to not try as hard for a conviction as opposed to maybe the difference there is that cops are unique? As you write, they should have the same standards of due process, but there are differences. I mean, we are them. You worked in the Bronx. You couldn't have a gun in the Bronx. Cops have to have a gun in the Bronx. Cops, you know, are the people we want to shoot people if the bad guys are there. So there is a difference calculus with cops. (laughs) I have to quibble with your premise. I actually don't want cops shooting anybody. And in fact, in my experience, and or at least my worldview, uh, shooting people is by and large utterly unnecessary in a, civili- in a civilized society. What we have are well-armed police officers with guns and, by the way, cars and helicopters and tanks and an awful lot of stuff. And in almost every instance, absent those in which someone actually pulls a gun and aims at a cop, mm-hmm. they can always retreat call for backup, surround someone, and resolve the situation. So, yes, police officers are different. That is to say, they have different obligations, they have different authority, and so prosecuting them is different and complex. But you would have to be astoundingly naive to not see the fundamental synergy between cops and prosecutors. Prosecutors rely on cops to make their cases. They are integral to the process, and police officers do not like seeing other police officers prosecuted. So that is inalterably, unquestionably, a conundrum for a district attorney. As I read the transcripts of the grand jury, haven't gotten to all of them. Oh, my God, there are so many thousands of pages. I mean, there are so (laughs) many witnesses called. But as I read it, I didn't think that the uh, St. Louis County prosecutors were necessarily doing a bad job. It wasn't what I expected a grand jury to be, but Mm -hmm. it did seem to me like they were asking good questions and trying to elicit from every witness what the witness actually saw. Did you see it differently? No, actually, I didn't see it differently. And let's make clear that my quibble with what's going on has nothing to do with having opened the process. Quite the contrary. This should be a model. We should have a more open process of grand jury inquiry. My quibble is much more with whether or not what McCulloch said he was doing was what he was really doing. If grand juries were conducted this way, what would it do to conviction rates? What would it do to clogged court schedules? Well, okay, it would have nothing to do with conviction rates insofar as those cases would never wind up going to trial. They wouldn't be indicted, and that would be the end of the line. So that would be entirely fine. It would serve as a better winnowing process, getting rid of more questionable cases, as, by the way, it should. That's the point. The point is to have a genuine and serious inquiry as to whether or not there is probable cause to believe a certain individual committed a felony. And I think nothing but good 
comes from taking that more seriously. And when I say taking that more seriously, what I mean is treating it as a serious material step rather than a formality. Do you think this was a case that was properly winnowed? That's a tough question for me. You know, I thought that there would be an indictment. I thought there would be an involuntary manslaughter indictment, I have to say honestly, and I was surprised, unlike everybody else who took a no-true bill as a foregone conclusion. I did not see it that way. There is, to my mind, something reckless about pulling the trigger. In most instances, as I said, I tend to believe that although cops are not necessarily trained to retreat and regroup, there is almost often, almost always that opportunity. At the same time, I don't think that this was an unimaginable result. I don't think it was an indefensible result. I think it could have gone either way. David Feige has been covering the Darren Wilson-Michael Brown case for Slate. He's the author of Indefensible. He's a former public defender. Thank you so much, David. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks again. So a rough day that no one could feel very good about last night, which is why they invented spirits and the bars that serve spirits and the men and women who work in these bars and concoct the exact combinations of said spirits. So come with me out of this studio and let's grab a drink. So obviously Thanksgiving is a holiday that's built around eating and stuffing and the turkey, but come on, the great joy of it is drinking, as with most endeavors in life. Now, I like a beer. I will usually have an IPA to start, and then a porter, and then a stout, and then around two, I'll really start drinking. <laughs> no, but there's there are so many great cocktails, not just for Thanksgiving, but for the season. So right now, I'm sitting in a great bar called... Well, it's really a restaurant, Hudson Clearwater. It's, uh, you know, just a couple blocks from the office. So that was what recommended it. But it's a very good place. But I'm speaking with the authors of Brooklyn Spirits, Craft Distilling and Cocktails from the World's Hippest Borough. They are Peter Thomas Fornatel. Hello, Pete. How are you? Thanks for having us on the show. And Chris Wirtz. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thank you. Now, is the, the Brooklyn end of it, obviously, you're chronicling what's going on in the borough, but how does the Brooklynness actually translate throughout the world? Because I'm going to guess, I've seen our demographics, like at least two-thirds of our listeners don't even live in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Brook, there's this concept right now of Brooklyn as idea, at least in terms of restaurant and drink stuff. And what that means to me, in the most basic terms, is... Uh, Doing craft, doing things in a in a crafty way, where the owner's involved in the full production of a of a spirit or hands on throughout the process at a restaurant. And there's also a DIY element very common in Brooklyn right now, and that's what makes it really fun for a cocktail book because it's not just taking ingredients and mixing them together to make a drink. It's also inventing some of your own ingredients and uh, coming up with creative uses for leftover cranberries in the fridge or whatever it is, and then spinning an exciting cocktail out of it. So we we try to. Uh, uh, get in touch with the Brooklyn ethos that way. So at this point, the bartender takes our order, and we got two cocktails off the menu, and then Peter orders one right out of his book. It's called the Whiskey Fatchelé, and we have the recipe on our website. That's slate.com slash the gist. Let's hear how Peter orders it. And what it is is two ounces of whiskey. We should use the most local whiskey you have. I don't know uh, what that is, maybe from uh, Hudson. 
and and we'll we'll stick a stick an ounce and a quarter of cardamaro in there. Okay. And a little bit of bitters. Just Angostura. Angostura's fine, always good. And uh, what do we do with? Uh, why don't we want to do it stirred and up? Stir it up. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Tell me about bartending and uh, what drew you to it and why you like it so much. I'm going to assume you like it so much. What drew me to bartending ultimately was my ego. It was a chance to be on stage, collect money from people, give them drinks, get credit for pouring a beer, and still have three feet of space between us all the time. It was really like most lifetime bartenders inspired by psychosis. Uh-huh. To this day, Pete will tell you straight up, I cannot be in a bar where I'm less than three feet from a person. I just can't do it, and I don't like not controlling the environment. Tom Cruise's character in Cocktail were really to exist. How quickly would he be out of business? Um, you're talking about my hero. <laughs> <laughs> so you, do, you do poems on top of the bar? <laughs> we, we always make drinks so nice and snazzy. Vodka with peach. Um, kamikaze. My wife, you know, grew up in an era when... you are married to Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, I am. I am married to Elizabeth Shue. My wife grew up in an era when that movie was quite cool, and she married a bartender, and her favorite scene now in the movie is when she, Elizabeth Shue, whispers to Tom Cruise... It's twins, and she finds out she's pregnant because when my wife was pregnant, she did not miss the opportunity to whisper to me that we actually were having twins. And the irony just was perfect for her, and I sunk like he did. Did her father try to bribe you off with an all-but-blank all check? <laughs> the silence speaks volumes. All right, let's talk Thanksgiving itself. What We ordered some good seasonal drinks, but if we really wanted to attack the turkey with a cocktail, what would we do? Well, the ingredient, the most thanksgiving cocktail ingredient that we have in the book and uh, out there generally in the world is, uh, is cranberry, I feel like. You can do a lot of fun things with a cranberry shrub, which is basically a shrub as a colonial-era technique to preserve fruits. And essentially, in the most basic version, we're talking about taking equal parts of fruit and vinegar and sugar and mixing them together and essentially then extracting that juice and you end up with this sort of wonderful cranberry slash. You, you, the vinegar presents more as citrus in the final preparation. Just take that and mix it with whiskey and uh, give it a nice twist and, and, and you're doing okay for your, Thanksgiving, your pre-Thanksgiving meal cocktail. Yeah, six, after six or seven of those, you want to uh, move to some spicier drinks, you know, and the flavors of Thanksgiving inspire a, a million cocktails with all the nutmegs and cinnamons and ginger and even pumpkins and squash. If they work in a pie, they're going to work in a cocktail. Yeah. So the drinks arrive, and we start with the whiskey facile. Smells great. Yeah, that's the drink. He nailed it. The experts are tasting the drink. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny. We say nailed it, but the idea behind this drink is that you can really make it any way you want. It's um, based on just like a lazy bar, how a lazy bartender drinks at home. A lazy bartender usually only has two or three bottles at home, finds a way to make them work together, stirs it with his finger and some ice, and you just you get used to pouring enough that it, it's going to taste good. And if you've been steeping your finger in the right rum all day, it imparts flavor. Well, usually you've been steeping your finger in um, sink bleach uh-huh. from uh, <laughs> stirring glasses, and that's where it really cleans up the glass nice. <laughs> so the facile was really good, and it was served over rocks, but like really nice, big, chunky cubes of ice. I like that. I always try to tell everybody, you know, the perfect cocktail is a glass of wine, 
or a great bourbon because there are so many flavors within it to yeah. draw out, to, to think about. You don't have to add much. And when you want to add, it just has to add something special, not just for the sake of adding. So a simple cocktail with three drink, three ingredients should stand out in a crowd. Basically, it's like, you know, that whole discussion we're having about when you put all these extra ingredients, why even bother having great liquor in it to begin with? You know, it's like getting a great album on a good sound system that's produced by, by Brian Eno and then re-EQing it, right? And then you raise the bass because Brian Eno fucked that up. <laughs> there is this question of authorship and it comes up a lot, but I think, oh, I, like you know, yeah. I firmly believe though that there's room for, for both approaches and it comes down to mood and occasion and where your palate is at that time. A lot of times I'll go super simple for a cocktail, but there's also something wonderful about a more complicated drink made yeah. well when you can when you can nail it you know the, the right punch for a party whatever it happens to be at the end of the day I, I always say this there's only one thing to judge does it taste good or not if it doesn't taste good whether it's one ingredient or 16 ingredients there's something wrong well also the bartender's rhyme scheme yeah, yeah. yeah. the bartender's rhyme scheme is important his playlist yeah. and how he kicks people out of the bar is yeah. it a bum's rush right. is it a gentle push is it, yeah. is it call security have you had to remove uh, disorderly patrons from the bar H hundreds and hundreds and what do you do um, well before I had security it was usually the bum's rush yeah. back of the collar back of the belt push them out the front door uh -huh. Once I had security, it was uh, a little more aggressive to get someone behind you <laughs> to make you seem a lot tougher. What's the signal? Give me the signal for uh, calling this guy's cut off. You got to get him out. It's you have to be subtle because you don't want to um, create a riot. So yeah. it's usually get this motherfucker out of here. He's driving me fucking nuts yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> like that. and um, that gets you know you get their attention, but you don't push it. What about a woman? Have you kicked women out of the bar? I thought we were talking about women. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I respect, I think you really do know a lot about cocktails. It is pretty clear to me, and you've convinced me. I'm maybe a little skeptical. I'm more of a let's have a really good scotch guy. And what are some overly pretentious things about cocktail culture that drive you crazy? Whew, it's tough to say this without being too obvious who I'm talking about, but I, I think sometimes. <laughs> it's Chris. <laughs> Earmuffs, Chris. Earmuffs. The, uh, no, sometimes the, the, the manner can supersede the quality of what's in the glass. You know, classic like anything else for me, uh, judging media, judging drinks, judging food, you need to have substance along with the style. And you will see places. One place that did not make it into the book in Williamsburg, for example, you know, you went in there and everything was precious and perfect and the bartenders were carefully costumed. But, you know, it took them like eight minutes to make a drink when it wasn't crowded and it didn't taste right and clearly nobody had taken the care to you know stick a straw in there and make sure they knew what they were they were serving before they sent it out and like yeah. it, it makes me that kind of stuff makes me a little crazy if you're gonna talk the talk by having you know uh, that kind of a setup you gotta walk the walk or you're just you're making us all look make the people who love cocktails and are doing this stuff out in brooklyn look real bad that's sort of what made us attracted to brooklyn to, to do this book it's really the in my opinion, the difference between the Manhattan cocktail scene and the Brooklyn cocktail scene is there's definitely pretense out there. It's, it's happening, but it's far less. There's a lot of, there's a, you know, there's a dive bar named Lucy's Lounge. That, my God, there's no pretense at all. It's a, it's a dive bar, but they've got great cocktails because they care so much about their cocktails. And there's a lot of them. That's the, that's the rule more than the exception out in Brooklyn, where in Manhattan, the cocktail's always been, you know, wrapped in lace. It's always been a highfalutin thing. And it's it's just so much buildup. It's hard to enjoy it at the end of the day if you're expecting so much out of it. 
In Brooklyn, when you order a cocktail, it's in a lot of places, it's almost like ordering a beer. Chris Wirtz, Peter Thomas Fornatel, co-authors of Brooklyn Spirits, craft distilling and cocktails from the world's hippest borough. The, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess much more successful follow-up to Poughkeepsie beer bongs. It did not sell that well. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. You didn't like uh, Poughkeepsie beer bongs? Yeah, it was, it was okay. You know what? I got the Kindle version, so I didn't really think it translated. Oh, yeah. the, the, I like the, 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 hard, the hard cover was actually a bong. That was the that was the sell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a DIY bong. <laughs> and that's it for today's show. As producer of the gist, Andrea Salenzi is a sweet Jane. One and a half ounce Widow Jane straight bourbon whiskey, quarter Amaro, Amerigo, and a dash of Pro Tools. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, is something of an uncouth apple. Three ounces of apple cider, one and a half ounce uncouth vermouth pear ginger, half an ounce of industry standard vodka, float three apple seeds, Granny Smith preferred. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is a one mint julep. It's two and a half ounces of Kings County bourbon, four sprigs of mint, crushed ice, seltzer, hair of Alidar, hoof of equipoise. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email. Sign up for that at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. We are on Facebook. Facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. A note on syrups. Where a recipe asks for a simple syrup, combine equal parts sugar and water in a small saucepan. Simmer until the sugar is dissolved. Let cool before using. Alternatively, pour liberally out of Mrs. Butterworth's skull. Make sure guests are on their fifth or sixth libation. That'll work like a charm. Thanks for listening.